This is It's All Relative, the true crime podcast where we talk about how shitty families can really be. There are a few clue words in the previous sentence that should suggest whether this podcast is for you or not. If you need to, take the out now. Also, this production is all me, and I have no money, so there is no lawsuit potential here. The last episode, I gave you a much abbreviated and rather muffled background of the Italian mob in America and how the Chicago outfit differs from most of the other mafia families. It bothers me so much how muffled this is, I will probably re-record it at some point, but for the sake of not getting stuck in a rut, I will endeavor to put it to the back of my mind. Today's tale will take us further into the Chicago outfit through three men in the Calabrese family. That's family as in grandfather, father, and son, and not as in mafia family or an arm of the Chicago syndicate. But before we go any further, let's hear some advice from Rod Stewart. It's not time to make a change. Just relax, take it easy. You're still young, that's your fault. There's so much you have to know. Find a girl, settle down. If you want, you can marry. Look at me. I am old, but I'm happy. I was once like you are now And I know that it's not easy to become When you found something going on Take your time, think a lot Why, think of everything you got For you will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not I think it's important for my audience to know that I have actually been having trouble deciding how to present this case. The ordeal of the Calabrese family received a lot of media attention about 15 years ago due to a massive court case against the outfit. It has continued to receive media attention through the years at varying levels and may be due for another upswing with a slightly more than rumor of a movie in the works. I feel that there are a plethora of nuanced ideas that could be drawn out. And there are certainly several tangents that we could go down. However, the main issue underlying all of this is the problem of the source of all of this information. There really is only one, Frank Calabrese Jr. Granted, many of the cases I research have a limited number of primary sources from which my information comes. In that, this case is no different, and we, all of us, can only work with what we have. Frank Jr. wrote a book about this case called Operation Family Secrets, How a Mobster's Son and the FBI Brought Down Chicago's Murderous Crime Family. His co-authors are Keith Zimmerman, Kent Zimmerman, and Paul Pompian. Now, I'm not sure which of these authors got to set the tone for the book, but it reads like a Raymond Chandler novel. Todd McLaren, who is the audiobook actor, definitely reads the book like it's a noir novel. Dashiell Hammett would have been proud. In addition, it is fairly easy to find interviews, yes, plural, with Frank Jr. on the web. And while I do sense sincerity from him, I also get the sneaking suspicion that Frank Jr. has kissed the Blarney Stone. Look, he grew up in a household and idolized a man who knew how to play people. And it comes through when he expresses himself. He learned how to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean he's not sincere about what he says, but it does make me a bit suspicious. 
In addition to this, there are a few small details that change from interview to interview. Granted, a lot of time has passed, and that has given Frank Jr. time to talk to friends and family and possibly get more of the details straight. Plus, he now has in possession his father's writings that I can only imagine has given him a new understanding of the past. I mean, how many of us really know and understand our parents when we are young? And that is the point from which Frank Jr. started his knowledge of his father. Frank Calabrese Sr. was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17, 1937, St. Patrick's Day. He grew up in The Patch, which was a tough West Side, mostly Italian immigrant neighborhood with its heart at Grand and Ogden. Now, if you look up this place today, what is known as The Patch has actually moved to a different part of Chicago and it, the concept of a neighborhood named The Patch has actually moved several times. So right now we're talking about the one that has its heart at Grand and Ogden. Frank's parents had emigrated from the Barisi and Sicilian regions of Italy. Now, there is no, I repeat, no reason to believe that Frank Sr.'s father was a mafioso, but please note, this is the heart of the culture that instigated the American mafia and Frank Sr. grew up in this atmosphere. Although the family was Catholic, they were not really active in the church. Frank was the eldest of seven children and his father ruled the family with very strict discipline and Mama Calabrese was quick to back up Papa. Frank liked how his father expected and received deference and he started to emulate him at an early age. He started on the playground, acting as a guard against bullies, but he was also known to be quick with a punch, no matter if it was the bully or the bullied that was wising off. It became so difficult to tell if he was actually protecting the weak or offering protection that by the fourth grade, he'd been expelled for bullying. Okay, if you remember back to the last episode, or maybe I should say if you could understand the last episode, you may remember me saying that the Italian immigrants tended to live in poor neighborhoods and struggled to make ends meet to give their children a better life. You may also remember the small groups of boys, hoodlums, who opposed the massive effort that their parents had to make just to survive. By that I mean, not that they are opposed to their parents, but that they reject the shit their parents have to go through on a daily basis. These hoodlums would often perform tasks, usually illegal, that would get them noticed by a particular crime boss. If they could get in with a given boss, they could make money and gain respect, two things their parents never seemed to have. Frank also wanted to improve his lot in life, but for Frank, working under someone else was not his aspiration in life. At 13, Frank was running a newspaper stand with his younger brother, Nick. Now, this must have been catch-22 for his parents. These are parents who wanted him to make something of himself. However, Mama and Papa Calabrese were also having trouble making ends meet and were occasionally welcoming Frank and Nick's extra income to help to feed the family. By the time Frank was 15, they were actually relying on the extra income Frank brought in. In fact, as an adult, Frank Sr. often told the story of Christmas, 1949, when the elder Calabreses had no money for presents for anyone. Frank gave them $100 and asked only that they buy him a fishing pole. When Christmas morning came, everyone had gifts, but Frank did not get his fishing pole. He never did truly forgive his parents for that slight. If this story is true, it would have been roughly $1,300 in today's money and Frank would have only been 12 years old. At 16, 
Papa Calabrese finally had enough of what he thought of as Frank's lack of discipline. So he lied about Frank's age and enlisted him in the U.S. Army. Again, Frank Sr. was not dreaming of having someone tell him what to do every hour of every day for the rest of his life. Within days of starting BMT, that's basic training by the way, he went AWOL. He hid out in the pigeon coop on the roof of the building his family lived in in Chicago. He was there for weeks before anyone knew he was up there. They did finally find him and they sent him back to the army. Where, again, within days, he got into a fight with an officer and gets locked in the stockade. Now, somehow, they don't explain how, he escapes again. This time, he's in Kentucky, so going home to Illinois is not as easy to get to. He steals a vehicle to help him escape, but he is caught by the Kentucky police and was given a choice to return to the army or to serve his sentence for auto theft. Frank chooses prison. He gets a dishonorable discharge from the army and two years in prison in Nashville, Kentucky. As a side note, I actually wonder if he could have just escaped all of the trouble if he had just told them his real age. In any event, once his two years are up, Frank goes back to Chicago and finds work where he can. I quote from the book Operation for Secrets. After serving his sentence, my dad worked at a series of grueling manual labor jobs. He and my grandpa shoveled coal out of the back of a truck and hoisted and unloaded blocks of ice into nearby boxcars for the Jefferson Ice Company. He was soon promoted to driving a truck for Jefferson Ice, which paid decent money. Yet his violent side simmered. He and a co-worker, a large black man, got into arguments on the job. The two men didn't like each other. He forged a phony truce with the guy and after a night of drinking, the man was never seen or heard from again. My dad didn't admit that he killed the guy, though he told me once that after that night, nobody seen the guy again. End quote. Frank's co-worker has just up and disappeared, and no one knows what happened to him. In an interview with YouTube's Mob Vlog, given in March of this year, Frank Jr. gives a little more detail about this disappearance. Yeah, my dad confided in me and stuff, and, and, and he was having a problem with the guy who worked for Jefferson Ice over there often near Reese Park over there. And there was a guy, a tough guy, that was, uh, he was having problems with. So what he did was he became friends with the guy, he set him up. Dad was very good at that, uh, very street smart. He set him up and he killed him. Now by 1961, Frank is running a small crew that robs weddings and parties. This is not the your money or your life kind of robbery. This is more pickpocketing, but either way, he has developed a fairly lucrative business. Even though at this time Frank is not a member of the outfit, he has some outfit-like practices. For instance, Frank's pickpocketing grift may be doing well, but he still has a quote-unquote real job as a front. About this same time, he meets and soon marries an Irish girl named Dolores Hanley. And soon after the nuptials, Frank loses his position as a delivery driver, his day job. This, of course, is no good for his cover and for a man who needs to support his family. So Dolores' father finds him a job. Now, Papa Hanley ran with the O'Donnell gang before the Northside gang went belly up. And Dolores' brother, Edward, had clout in H-E-R-E-I-U, which is the hotel union that was investigated in the 1990s for mafia corruption. From 1961 to 64, Frank Sr. continues his theft ring and expands into burglary. He has a realization, though, that money lending is more profitable and less risky 
and he starts a lending business, known in Chicago as Juice Lending. The term juice, by the way, is a serious corruption of a Yiddish word for money lending. And on that note, just as, you know, an FYI, the way and, and speed at which names alone changed from their original Italian is fascinating. Calabresi to Calabrese, a case in point. Now, the juice loan rate was 5% a week, which is roughly 21% a month, about the same as today's credit cards. Frank was good with his fists and knew how to use them to collect, if need be, but he was also savvy. It made more sense to change the deal and earn more in the long run if a customer was having trouble paying. But he could switch on a dime if a customer was not willing to deal or willing to pay, like Hyde to Dr. Jekyll. Now, whether he wanted to or not, at age 26, Frank Sr. got noticed by Angelo the Hook La Pietra. And Angelo earned his nickname. He liked to hang his victims from a meat hook and torture them with a blowtorch until they died. Angelo liked what he saw in Frank and knew he could be of use to the outfit. The alternative was that Frank's activities were a threat or at least a slap in the face to the mafia. There isn't really anything said about Frank's decision process, but he ended up under La Pietra's wing and the head of the 26th Street or Chinatown crew. What this means for the juice loan business is that Frank still essentially runs everything, but he gives a percentage to La Pietra. An additional repercussion of this merger is that Frank begins to be given wet work to do. The problem of the mob is that even though most of the upper echelon wanted to make money, the nature of the business always also attracted people who liked killing. Sam Giancana, Tommy Karate, the mob knew it would have to resort to psychopathic methods at times and tolerated and occasionally sought out psychopaths for just those moments. Interestingly, there was always someone else equally capable of killing who could eliminate any wet workman who got too crazy or drew too much attention. La Pietra saw in Frank a bit of himself. Frankie Breeze even became known for the Calabrese necktie, but the Colombians may have gotten to the naming first. In 1967, Frank's brother Nick returns from the Navy. Nick spends time working in legitimate jobs, including working on the Chase Tower. However, a co-worker falls to his death while working on a high-rise, and Nick starts looking for other ways of making a buck. Now, Nick has always admired his eldest brother, and Frank is doing well financially, and he is in charge of his own crew. So Nick asks to join Frank's juice loan business. Nick worked with Frank's crew for about a year or so, and Nick was not the guy you would think of when you hear mafioso, and he is definitely not the guy anyone would naturally go to for a hit. It is not clear if it is Frank who has the idea or if La Pietra sends the order. Personally, I think it was probably a bit of both. But the outfit gives the Chinatown crew the job of eliminating Michael Albergo, who is an associate who was being pressured by the feds to give up info. And for the job of eliminating Albergo, Frank takes Nick with him. The way he goes about this is so underhanded because he basically doesn't give his brother a choice. He asks Nick to come along, but he doesn't explain what they're going to do. When Frank kills Albergo, Nick is so freaked out he pees himself and can you blame him? When Frank gave you that look, you didn't say no, and Nick now had no way out because if he tried to get out, the Mafia would put a hit out on him. So he helps Frank bury the body, and his life is forever changed. In 1970, Frank has enough money coming in to move his wife, his two sons, Frank Jr. and Kurt, and his extended family 
parents, brothers, their wives, and children to a big home in Elmwood Park, a neighborhood known for its mob connections. In fact, the family ends up living in a multi-story home that had been separated into individual apartments. They called it a three-flat. Everyone had their own space, their own home, but the doors were rarely locked and family members came and went throughout the compound, as the Calabreses called it, as they wished. Growing up, Frank Jr. idolizes his father. From what I've told you about Frank Sr., you may wonder why Sr. should be idolized. But let me remind you that in the Chicago outfit, a mafioso's family was kept out of all mafia dealings. You didn't even hint about your connections at home. Family was off limits. Wait, but what about Nick? Well, that's a little bit of a crack in the veneer, and we'll discuss that more in a bit. But for now, when Frank Sr. is not at work for the Mafia, he is being the grandfather of the Calabrese clan. And I quote from Operation Family Secrets, Dad had an overwhelming personality that appealed to both sides of the family. The Irish relatives especially liked him, and he was deft at winning over a room. Other than Uncle Ed, the Hanley Irish side of the family had little money. They were cops or city workers. Their kids attended Catholic schools and lived in modest houses. Whenever there was a funeral, there would be a couple bottles of whiskey on the table and a case of beer in the fridge. My father would then go to the store and come back with boxes of liquor, cases of beer, and a large spread of food. He'd throw it out on the table with a huge smile. To his Irish relatives, Frank Calabrese Sr. was a kind and considerate gentleman who treated everyone with the utmost respect and equality. He appeared to have no motive other than providing for my mother's family. Who wouldn't love a guy like that? End quote. But note, again, from his most recent interview. So, um, you know, it's funny because family parties over the years, Irish and Italian in Chicago didn't really like each other very much. So a lot of times I was conflicted. I didn't know what side to pick. So Frank Sr. is the big fish in a small pond and he's enjoying it. He is definitely loving the position of being the guy everybody loves and the man who can take care of all of his family. He is not talking about his mob affiliations at home, but everyone who knows him knows that at minimum, he is loose with the legality of his income. It's that unspoken rule of don't ask, don't tell, and blend in to be normal. The immediate family at least knows about Frank Sr.'s burglaries, and Frank Jr. wants to be like his idol, his father. I quote again from Frank Jr.'s book, like many sons who tried to imitate their fathers, at age 14, I did my first burglary. Breaking into a neighbor's house while the occupants were away on vacation, I made off with about $50 in cash plus a stash of worthless costume jewelry. Not knowing what to do with my haul, I took it down to the basement of the compound and stashed it inside an old unplugged clothes dryer. Inside the dryer was a black clothing store bag containing paperwork. I put my stash underneath the black bag and went to bed. A few hours later, Uncle Nick woke me and summoned me to the big room where my father was waiting with the lights on. My father sat me down. You want to tell me where you got that stuff downstairs? I knew I was found out and wasted no time confessing. I broke into the house down the street. Why? I don't know. I guess I did it for the thrill of it. Son, you don't do stuff like that. Do you know what they do in this town if you steal? I had an idea of who they were. I waited for the cupped hand smacked across my temple, but it never came. Do not steal from anybody in the neighborhood. 
I don't want you to do it again. People lose their fingers for breaking into other people's houses. You're grounded for a week. It was the first time he had grounded me. I want you to go to bed and think about what you've done. He motioned to my uncle. You know what to do with this stuff. There was an understanding between outfit guys not to steal in certain neighborhoods, especially Elmwood Park, River Forest, and Taylor Street, where the bosses lived. If you were a known thief and they discovered your identity, you were a dead man. I couldn't figure out how my father found the stash so quickly. It turned out that the black bag contained his and Uncle Nick's juice phone reports and football betting slips. I had selected the identical hiding place as my father. While I didn't like getting busted, I was gratified that he had spoken to me like a real father. Strangely, it felt good seeing him act the traditional role of the caring dad. I had experienced an important rite of passage, even if I had picked the wrong neighborhood. End quote. So I take note of the part where Frank Jr. is expecting a beating. Beatings were not an unusual part of Frank Jr. and Kurt's upbringing. This is a hard topic to speak to because it is very easy to turn it into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look, he beat the kids, and that's proof of his destiny to be a monstrous human being. But that's not really fair. Corporal punishment was extremely common in American households up through the 1980s. This stuff is happening in the 60s and 70s. So Frank Jr. expecting a beating is actually within the realm of normalcy. I do think it is one of a long line of steps that eventually led to Frank Sr. being an ugly human being, but it's a step, nothing more, and he could have receded back down the staircase or stopped at that step. I think, especially early on, Frank Sr. wants to be a good man, but I think his motivations are murky. There is definitely a part of him that loves to be loved, so anything he can do to promote people adulating him had serious standing in his decision-making. So, here's his eldest son, who obviously is trying to emulate his father, and despite the target being a misstep, he has a knack for life and crime. And I think Frank Sr. saw a way to foster his son's idolization, and eventually increase the credibility of his crew. Frank Sr. starts sending Frank Jr. along with Uncle Nick to collect extortion money from adult movie shops. As Junior gets older, he starts helping more with the juice loans, especially with the collection of payments. In the early 1980s, the Chinatown crew are tasked with taking out Michael Cagnoni. They spend a year figuring out the best way to get him. They call this laying on. They decide on a remote, activated bomb that would explode when Cagnoni's car drove by the sensor. But once they lay the trap, life gets in the way. Cagnoni's wife and child end up driving the car before Cagnoni does. Luckily, her route did not take her past the hidden sensor, but the potential for innocence to be harmed shook Nick. Again, I quote from Frank Jr.'s book, Michael Cagnoni's pending murder became a turning point for my uncle, as he harbored doubts about his role as the dependable, cold-blooded killer. He was a family man with kids, and while staking out the Cagnoni residence one day, he watched in horror as Cagnoni's wife, Margaret, started up the family Mercedes to take their young son, Michael Jr., to school. This poor woman, Uncle Nick later said, got in the car. If she had come east and not west, I don't know what. Had she driven by the engaged remote control detonator, the device would have set off the C4, instantly killing Cagnoni's wife and child. After the close call, my uncle confronted my dad. Killing gangsters and shaking down businesses for outfit money was one thing. 
but murdering innocent women and children was another. My father responded angrily by smacking my uncle with his hand, fracturing his face, his psyche, and his allegiance to his older brother. This incident would prove to be the beginning of the end of their relationship. Cagnoni later drove into the trap alone. One witness, James Naminia, testified on June 24, 1981, while driving his Ford van, he saw Cagnoni's Mercedes pull up in front of him and head toward the Tri-State Tollway at Ogden Avenue and I-294. He heard a loud explosion, saw a white flash, and felt a burst of heat through the windshield. The smoke cleared it and I was able to see his vehicle, or what, what was left of it, in a grisly FBI photograph that no jury would see. Human remains, mostly head and shoulders, are plopped in the middle of the I-294 on-ramp. Pieces of the luxury Mercedes-Benz were strewn everywhere. And from as far away as a quarter mile, birds came to feast on Cagnoni's scattered body parts. End quote. Again, people get killed by doing business with and in the Mafia. But the outfit was supposed to be there to make life better for those who are outside the Mafia. Innocents were not supposed to get hurt, and yes, I know this is an untenable ideal, but I think the thing that really struck Nick here was not just that they almost killed innocents, but particularly Frank's reaction of, so what? Frank Sr. had been one of the professors of the no innocence rule, but now Nick was seeing the truth behind the lie. I wonder what Nick thought about his brother's role in the killing of the Daubers that same year. To keep it brief, the Dauber killing should have been just the Dauber, singular killing, but the hit crew found their moment when Billy Dauber was with his wife. Rather than leave her, the crew killed them both. This will come up again in the mob case IAR will cover, so put a pin in that. In any event, what can Nick really do about it? In 1983, both Frank and Nick are called to a meeting, and they become made men. In 1986, something happens that no one ever really discusses, and it is a bit strange that they don't in light of the personality changes that happen with Senior. Frank Senior goes in for surgery. He has a brain tumor. Now, so little has been said about this tumor that I barely know what kind of tumor this is. Now, by this time, Dolores and Frank have gotten divorced. He was never really one to be completely faithful. He did have a guma, which was, is essentially a mistress. And so I quote, in 1986, not long after his marriage to Diane, my father suffered intense migraine headaches and had problems with his eyesight. He wasn't keen on doctors dating back to his childhood when he spent months recovering from scarlet fever. Diane persuaded him to get a checkup, and after the results of the test came back, I met with him at his Oak Brook home. The news wasn't good. He had problems with his pituitary gland. His white blood count was minuscule, and it was feared that he might have a tumor in the middle of his brain. After further tests confirmed the tumor, my dad required immediate brain surgery. Assembling his family for a sit-down, he sugarcoated his condition, laughing it off. But privately, with me, he was very worried. His orders were precise. He told me I needed to step up and run things with Uncle Nick because there was a good chance that he would die from the surgery or else go blind. I was to stay in the background with the bosses and let them think my uncle was running everything. As my dad's health problems worsened, my devotion to my ailing father increased. We spent quality time together, going over specific scenarios and rules. Never completely trust or confide in anybody. Any direct questions about his business, plead ignorance. 
take care of my mother, and don't fight with my brothers over anything material. He wanted me to be cautious and to work closely with Uncle Nick. He knew that people on the street could take advantage of Nick's kindness whenever they came up short on collections. My father sat down with me and Kurt and pulled out a large case of expensive jewelry. He urged us to divide everything in half. Kurt and I looked at each other. We don't care about your jewelry. We only want you to get well. We knew how hard it was for him to give up control. On the day of the operation, my father insisted that both families be present in the waiting room. My dad's will was strong. At the same time, he looked vulnerable as they wheeled him away. For the first time in my life, my big, strong dad looked helpless. An awkward air hovered over the waiting room as my father's two families occupied opposite ends. On one side was Diane and her family. On the other was my mother and my two brothers and Uncle Nick. After Dad had been under the knife for hours, the doctors pulled a golf ball-sized tumor out of his skull. But the prognosis was good. He would be in pain for a while, but the surgery had gone smoothly. I was encouraged. Wow, things were going to change for the best. With a second chance at life, my father would be more humble. He would see the light and maybe walk away from his life with the crew. Maybe the tumor was the reason for his multiple personalities and abusive behavior. And after the surgery, the good dad would return permanently. I spent most of my time with Uncle Nick while my dad convalesced. We both hit the streets and collected loan payments and street taxes and set up a temporary office in the basement of my father's Oakbrook home. While he was getting stronger, I hatched a bold plan. I painted an overly grim picture of his health to dad's mob friends and associates. Every time I ran into a friend of my dad's or an outfit associate, I'd sadly hang my head. Soon word spread on the street that my dad was very sick and possibly wouldn't make it. I asked him, why not play the sick card and step back from the crew so that you won't be obligated to the outfit anymore? He seriously considered the idea, but the stronger he got, the more remote the possibility of stepping back became. All my hopes of his retirement fizzled after he told me he was itching to get back into action and reaffirm his presence on the street. I'm going to be back out on the street and get everybody back in line. And the first place I'm going to start is in the neighborhood. I will get everybody's asses twitching again. While recovering on the sidelines, my father missed out on a pair of plum outfit assignments, the killing of Emil Vassi in Arizona and the murders of Tony and Michael Spilato, end quote. Okay, so there's a lot of information in there, but let's stick with the tumor for now. Differential diagnosis is a pituitary tumor. Cancerous tumors of the pituitary gland are rare, but just because it's not cancer doesn't mean it's okay. The pituitary gland does a lot of things. And these tumors can damage the gland's ability to regulate all of those things. Personality and cognitive changes can and do occur when these tumors form. And those changes can remain even after the tumor has been removed. But the tumor is removed and Frank Sr. was never a man to spend time with doctors or psychiatrists. Okay, so at this point, Frank Sr. is trying to groom Jr. to take over the crew. He even denies Frank Jr. the opportunity to go to college. You see this push to get him to be the boss. When Frank Sr. goes in for surgery, he officially leaves the crew in the hands of Nick, but he expects that Frank Jr. will be the real power running the crew. And it is this push that will ultimately be his downfall. And today we have reached the end of our story. I will leave you with, I'm really sorry, a bit of a cliche, Bobby Darren, and I will see you next time on It's All Relative. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. 
Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heat, baby. And it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites with his teeth, baby. Scarlet billows start to spread. Fancy gloves, though, where's old Maggie Heath, babe? So there's never, never a trace of red. Now on the sidewalk, uh-huh, ooh, Sunday morning, uh-huh, lies a body just oozing life. And someone sneaking round the corner. Could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down. Oh, that cement is just...